start with the buyer's journey. You know, how do they become aware of the problem that you solve? How do they talk about that problem? How do they decide to prioritize looking into that problem? And once they've kind of gone through that sequence, what are the different solutions they consider? What are the categories of solutions and what are the different vendors in those categories? What's your unique advantage within that set? Do you want to impact the world and still turn a profit? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to Growth Everywhere. This is the show where you'll find real conversations with real entrepreneurs. They'll share everything from their biggest struggle to the exact strategies they use on a daily basis. So if you're ready for a value-packed interview, listen on. Here's your host, Eric Sue. Before we jump into today's interview, if you guys could leave a review and a rating and also subscribe as well, that would be a huge help to the podcast. So if you actually enjoy the content and you'd like to hear more of it, please support us by leaving us a review and subscribe to the podcast as well. Thanks so much. All right, everybody. Very excited to do today's episode. It's with Mark Roberge, who is the chief revenue officer of the HubSpot inbound sales division and has written the sales acceleration formula, which is a book on how to build a winning sales organization. Now, Mark was actually one of the key executives responsible for taking HubSpot from $0 to $100 million. And this book, it's actually sitting next to me right now. I was just telling Mark before we started that it was sitting next to my bed before I had to move it over here. So very excited to talk about this. Mark, how are you doing? I'm great, Eric. Great to be here. Thanks. Thanks for being here. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and we'll talk a little bit about HubSpot. Yeah, sure. So uh, I was an engineer undergrad, started my career writing code for a few years and um, then jumped into the startup scene. Ended up at business school at MIT and uh, started a bunch of companies there as class projects. And one of my initiatives, I ran into one of our co-founders, Dharmesh Shah, and joined the company thereafter when there were about three employees. I joined in the capacity of of sales, which was ironic because I had never done sales before. And uh, seven years later, I found myself head of global sales with uh, a couple hundred folks under me and uh, approaching 100 million in revenue. So it was a fun journey. And um, I think the thing that people get a, you know, the, the appreciate the perspective on is just how someone like that background, which is very data and process oriented, applies that lens to sales. And that's really, you know, what the last nine years or so of my journey has been about. Awesome. Great. That's fantastic. And we'll certainly start to dive into a little bit of, of that more. Uh, but what does HubSpot do as a company? Sure. So um, during the, the time in MIT, one of our co-founders, Dharmesh, did a thesis on how the internet's changing the buying process, stuff that today sounds really obvious, but back then was less so. And that thesis triggered into uh, you know, a software company being HubSpot and a new meme that we coined, Inbound Marketing. And what that was all about was rather than you know, wasting dollars on outbound interruptive efforts like advertising, cold calling, trade shows, et cetera, Companies should refocus more of their effort on developing content, whether it's blogs or ebooks or podcasts like this, to be able to track customers, educate them, and attract them to their business. And so we built a, a whole company around that, built a large software package around it, really drove the term inbound marketing to be you know, a, a mainstay in the world of marketing. Um, and uh, that's the service we provide to our customers. Since then, we've diversified the term to be more about just marketing, but a way of doing business. Um, largely in the world of sales as well, and have developed a free CRM to complement our our marketing software. Interesting. So it's actually really interesting because I was doing a podcast literally before this, and this is a software as a service executive, and he was saying 
that you know when you, when you go out and you're selling to the, the the mid market enterprise level, you know you can't really quote unquote do inbound marketing. I, I didn't really say anything there, but what would your 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 response be to something like that? I disagree. I mean, I I I do think inbound marketing isn't a good fit for all situations, but I think people are confused or maybe uh, you know misled as to whether it applies to enterprise. You know, so I was speaking to someone the other day and. He happened to be had come out with a, a really cutting edge uh, drug, and and literally need to take it through the clinical trials. And basically, his short list of people he needed to hit was like twelve people. There were like twelve people that were head of R and D or biz dev at the top pharmaceutical companies. You're not going to do inbound marketing for that. <laughs> now, on the other hand, I was speaking with a company that's you know not a startup. They're in the, well into their growth stage. And they're just targeting the top Fortune 100 companies. Now, their product is such that whether you're an end user or a decision maker that it could benefit your business, it helps a lot of the people in those companies. So even though it's only the top 100 companies, there are tens of thousands of people employed by each one of those. So when you look at it at a company perspective, yeah, their addressable market's only 100. But when you look at it from an eyeball perspective, their addressable market is well into the hundreds of thousands, if not millions. And so that's, that's really the misnomer at the enterprise level of when inbound is effective, is uh, even when you're penetrating a small number of accounts, it's extremely effective to influence and, uh, you know, f- folks from within those doors to get a conversation going. I totally agree with that. And I'll just give an example to the audience here. You know, for us having a digital agency, you know, inbound does work. We never expect these leads to come in. But, you know, once they do, you know, we're, we're talking companies like Samsung or, or companies from China, like Tencent, massive internet companies that just come out of nowhere. And it's it's not like, you know, you know we said we, we wanted to do cold calling or anything like that. They just kind of appear because, you know, we, we've kind of built up that goodwill over time. And they said, you know, they've read something and then they wanted to learn more about us. So I'm with you on that. Yeah, great point, Eric. And the one point of appreciation is um, you know even if you don't attract people, and I think eventually you will, when you're out there and active and inbound, it brings a lot of credibility to the story as well, right? So if I got an intriguing email cold from a salesperson, and I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting, the first thing I'm going to do is blog the company and that person. And if it's you know kind of a ghost town on their website and a ghost town on their LinkedIn profile or social media presence, that's less intriguing. But if I find some really thought-provoking articles about problems that I've been having and I get educated, I, I've gone further down the, the buying journey just because of that experience. So even if it doesn't attract, and it will, it still adds a lot of value to you through the inbound selling journey. Right. Totally agree with that. In terms of numbers around the business, you guys are obviously a public company now. You know, what, what do revenues, numbers of customers look like at, at a high level? It doesn't have to be exact. Yeah, I mean, we're approaching $200 million. I think our last earnings for last year was uh, a little south of $180 million. Uh, growth was a little south of 50%. Nice, nice. And how did you guys go about acquiring, let's just say, your first 100 customers? Yeah, the first 100. Uh, we were very fortunate that, I mean, the first couple, like any startup that I'd recommend, we went through our networks. You know, we, we'd done a lot of work at, at MIT together. We'd sort of gotten to be known as the guys that understand web marketing and website development. So anytime that people had a, had a colleague that was looking into that, they called us, and that wasn't that hard for us to convert the first couple. So it was sort of, I guess, inbound what you were known for. But then very quickly, we were very fortunate to jump on this content generation approach really early. And we were, we were generating a ton of leads, and we definitely got most of our 100 customers from those efforts. And that's always a question I get that's an interesting thing to think about is... Uh, 
when should you start a blog as an early stage venture? You know, do you wait till Series A when you have a salesperson? Like what, when you have product market fit? I'll tell you, for us, we started blogging when we started building our product. <laughs> like literally nine months before we built it. And I, I thought it was, you know, it was really uh, advantageous that our co-founders had the, the, you know, the thought leadership to be able to, to, to execute on that. And you know, at the time, we were only blogging maybe twice a week, and it was really fell on the folks that were the handful of folks that were involved in the company early on. But because we were doing that, number one, we built a much better product because we just built about around the pain we were trying to solve, which any entrepreneur is, is heads down on. And we got a much better sense of where, how the market perceived the pain, how they described it, what points really resonated with them, just through which articles were, were you know, getting the most traction and how they were commenting on them. And then furthermore, by the time we were ready to launch the product, we ranked like number one in Google for many terms that had a decent amount of traffic relevant to our pain. So getting out sort of our, our first beta customers was quite easy. I think by then we'd had in the high hundreds, maybe even a thousand followers on our blog. They were all interested in what we were saying. And it was easy enough to get many of them into a free trial. So the other final piece of that is, it's not like even hiring an engineer or two. Like it's not that expensive to get some content going, whether you just step it up as a founder and work 80 hours instead of 70, or you just go and find a, a journalist intern from one of your local universities to do it for credit or 15 bucks an hour. You know, that you, you can, this isn't an a enormous uh, expense proposition to be able to get going. You talked about journalists for a second. I've heard that from another friend where he talks about hiring you know, journalists is actually better because they can do great research and then you can get them for actually better price in a full-time situation. So is that something you guys did pretty actively, you know, hiring journalists? Because I know a lot of internet marketers, you know, they're just, uh, or people in the digital marketing space, they're just you know, hiring kind of the, the most expensive writers. Yeah, we definitely, I mean, the second, report, the second uh, hire we made uh, in the marketing team was a reporter for the New York Times. You know, and this was back in 2008. So it was it was kind of a, a pivotal move and not the way people thought back then. More and more folks are doing it. And I, I still think we're at the early stages of that. You know, you've got this world of journalism that traditionally isn't exactly on fire, whether it's in newspapers or magazines or whatever. And then you've got all these marketers in sort of a B2B context that are trying to figure out how to redefine their strategy in this new age where the buyers have control and, and the internet's empowered them. And, and there's a great like, sort of one plus one equals three synergy there, where if these B2B marketing executives can just be more aggressive around engaging these journalists and build a content production process, just like they built a cold calling process and a trade show development process and a paid marketing process, that can really unleash a new way of marketing for them. Just to add a little context here for the audience, you know, I'm tracking kind of what the big blogs do. And HubSpot, you know, one of the things I'm looking at when you guys, you guys are producing over 50 brand new pieces of content each week, and that's way above what everyone else is doing. So you talk about, you know, it's almost becoming a, a newsroom where it's like really good stuff and it's just like, like a machine. So uh, props to you guys on that. So let's use a scenario here. Let's say we're a startup that has raised a Series A and we're looking to start selling. What is the typical sales structure you see for small teams like this? Oh gosh, it's so contextual, you know, depending on how expensive the product is, how much traction they have inbound, outbound, you know, but you know, usually what you've got at this point is you might have a couple people out there selling for a few months. Um, oftentimes it might be people who were, came out of the product team and they were just happened to be good with people. So they put them on the phones. It could be a buddy of the founder and they're starting to get some customer traction, but 
it's not really done in the most predictable or professional way. And, and really, once the you know, Series A or Series B hits, hopefully we've started to encounter product market fit at that point, and it's time to think about a more scalable approach to, to sales. So what I like to do as a starting point there is really think about it from the buyer's perspective first. You know, a lot of people think, okay, we need to professionalize sales. Let's build the sales process. We're going to prospect, then we're going to demo, and then we're going to close. And let's define those stages in our CRM and let's write what we're going to do at each stage. You know, you've all probably been sold to people like that where you feel like the person's just pulling you along through this process that you don't really want to go through. Right. And what I really advocate in this new age when with buyer empowerment is start with the buyer's journey. You know, how do they become aware of the problem that you solve? How do they talk about that problem? How do they decide to prioritize looking into that problem? And once they've kind of gone through that sequence, what are the different solutions they consider? What are the categories of solutions and what are the different vendors in those categories? What's your unique advantage within that set? And then as they move to the decision process and narrow in on your category and your solution, what's the evaluation criteria that they use to make that decision? Who else is involved and what are those different perspectives? Right. So when you look at it from that perspective and then build a sales process to support it, you end up in a much better foundation to scale sales from. Right. You know, like you mentioned, it's so contextual to the question itself. And I think there's a lot of nuances and variables involved. And the better way to do this, the best way to do this would be to pick up the book, The Sales Acceleration Formula. And I'm not affiliated in any way. I'm just saying the book is damn good. But anyway, continuing on here. Eric, I appreciate that. And just so you know, while you're on that point, 100% of the proceeds go to build.org, which is a nonprofit actually out in a couple different cities, they started out of uh, out of Silicon Valley. That basically takes the passion for entrepreneurship and applies it to kids who have grown up in some of the tougher neighborhoods in the major cities, who probably are at significant risk of not graduating from college and maybe ended up on a gang or in the streets or something along those lines. And and they basically expose them to entrepreneurship freshman year, and they go through a four year program of building a business. So thank you for mentioning the book, and anyone that supports it, thank you, and thank you for supporting Build.org. Yeah, that's fantastic. So I mean, a side question: Why did you decide to give all the proceeds away to, to Build.org? I knew I wanted to give all of them away, just because that wasn't the objective of the book. It was, uh, you know, it was really just trying to get all this stuff out of my head and, and help the ecosystem. To be quite frank, I mean. I had a lot of demand and continue to have a lot of demand of phone calls from entrepreneurs. And, uh, and I figured this would be a good way to get the blueprint out there and get some of these messages out there at better scale. And then, you know, if it did well, it would kick off some revenue. And, and uh, I thought this would be a kill two birds with one stone type of approach is if it does kick off revenue, why not put it back into the ecosystem and try to groom the next generation? That's fantastic. I mean, I mean that that's good. I, I think it, it makes total sense. You know, a lot of times, oftentimes, you're probably not going to need the, the the money from the book. Good to give it away. And I think the the other thing is also the brand awareness that you're getting as an individual right now. I mean, how has that helped you? Yeah, it's been great. I mean, as I think a lot of people go through that sequence. I, I think I've been fortunate that just the brand awareness of being an executive affiliated with HubSpot, you know, has and all the speaking opportunities and blogging opportunities. You know, we were able to get the personal brand at a certain level already. I think. The book has probably gotten there at an, another level just because people understand what I'm, you know, my perspective is what I'm about. You know what the most exciting thing has been, you know, when I jumped on calls with, you know, new sales leaders before I wrote the book, I would be the same questions and, and responses for me. You know, it was cool to add value, but it got like, you know, here's, it's the same thing, here, here's what you need to do. 
now it's just really cool when I get on them and they've essentially implemented everything in the book and we're like pushing the industry forward. So that's kind of really exciting to see and, and to work with the, the new generation of sales leaders on. Awesome. Yeah. And I, I can't rave about this book enough. I'm, I've read a ton of them out there. I mean, this is probably the best one. And it's, you know, you talk about having a bunch of actionable information here. I'm just flipping through it right now. It's all in here. Um, and I guess one of the questions would also be a lot of these processes, it, it would seem that if you had a good set of engineers around you, you can build some of these tools to, to help with tracking. But what about those companies that don't have the luxury of, you know, building out sales tools? What do they do here? Well, you know, there's the, that sales tools industry has been one of, one of the hottest industries in the last couple of years. You know, we didn't have this whole sales enablement space, you know, nine years ago when we started building up the team. And what it meant was a lot of hacks in in the code that ran, you know, the last legacy of sales software. Today, there's a boatload of startups and a boatload of established companies that are helping salespeople accelerate their process, automatically capture data, sell in a more contextual way that resonates with the buyer those tools are available without engineering help. Um, of course, we can you know, plug HubSpot shamelessly there. We, we ventured in this space three years ago. We have a free CRM that you could check out. And um, we have a product called Sidekick that uh, sits on top of the CRM and helps salespeople uh, you know, work in their email, work on their phone without having to log data manually into the CRM. Great. And we'll drop that in the show notes for sure. Obviously, there's a ton I want to cover here, but um, let's just talk about one, one item here. Tell us what a forced referral is. Sure. Yeah, so um, as the book talks about, when you think about the major categories of work that you have to do as a founding head of sales, you have to uh, hire salespeople, you've got to train them, get them up to speed, you've got to manage them and, and develop them toward quota. And um, you're never going to be able to do an A-plus job on all three, even if you know what an A-plus job sounds like. You just don't have the time and bandwidth. And so as I reflected on that issue, I was like, if I'm going to cut corners, where should I cut corners? And if I'm going to do an A-plus job on one of them, where should I do an A-plus job? And it wasn't long before I figured it's got to be hiring. Because if I do a C job on hiring and kill it on training and managing, it doesn't matter. I've got average people, below average people on the bus. It's just not going to fly. But if I can put a lot of effort, and I literally put like half my time when we were 10 people in a garage, half my time finding and recruiting salespeople, I just figured the rest will take care of themselves. I mean, even if I do a C-plus job at training and managing, A players will find a way to win. And so the most difficult part of that was after posting up some ads that we were hiring and interviewing, phone screening like 50 to 60 people, I realized that great salespeople aren't active in the market. They don't have to apply for a job. Great salespeople every quarter have all their former bosses reaching out to them saying, are you still happy? Because I'm off to this new venture and you always know the door is open for you to come work for me. right? So I quickly realized we needed a passive recruiting strategy to get the sales team that we wanted. And there's a bunch of um, tactics outlined in the book around that. One of them called the force referral, which is extremely effective. And what that meant was when someone joined the organization, give them a couple months to settle in and let their last employer settle out of their blood a little bit. And then we'd schedule a meeting for the next day said, hey, Eric, you know, let's meet for 20 minutes and talk about who you might know that would be a good fit for our team. I'm gonna, I've already connected with you on LinkedIn, so I'm going to go through your you know, 472 connections on LinkedIn tonight and see if there's anyone that's a good fit and come with that list tomorrow. And so I'd come up and show, show up with 21 names and say, okay, Eric, let's go through each one of these. Are they good? And do you know them well enough to introduce me? And you'd be amazed, like, 
you know, everyone posts up, hey, $2,500 or $5,000 referral for a hire, and people think about one or two names. But when you go through this forced referral process, you, you generate, you know, 10x the flow, and you have, you've also generated really warm introductions into those people. Great. And just out of curiosity, are you guys paying a referral fee for uh, any introductions? Yeah, we do. And that, so I apologize, that policy always changes and whether it's internal or external and how much it is. So we've always done that. I just don't know what is off the top of my head. No worries. Just wanted to know. Okay. One big thing that I know had a big impact for you guys is your value added reseller program. Can you talk a little bit about that and how it performed? Gosh, what a, what a game changer for us as well. I think it was the fourth or fifth hire I made all the way back in 2007. A guy named Pete Caputo, who was an entrepreneur in the area, convinced him to kind of lay up his shoes around entrepreneurship and jump into the sales team. And almost since the beginning, he was obsessed with building out a channel program. And uh, I'll tell you, we were very resistant to it as an executive team. We just heard from many of our mentors that it wasn't worth it early on. It takes so much effort to get these relationships set up. And then it takes twice the effort to even get deal flow to go through there. And plus, you know, you're too far away from your customer at that really critical early stage of the business. However, he kept at it and we'd matured a little bit. So we gave him a shot and he absolutely crushed it with the program. So every time he came back with better and better results, we came back with more and more investment from him. You know, hey Pete, here's fifty thousand dollars in marketing. Hey Pete, here's three headcount. That organization is worth is uh, generates thirty nine percent. I think our last S one said thirty nine percent of our our new customer acquisition. Uh, check the S one if you want the exact data, but it's just been a, a mind blowing experience for us. And kudos to Pete for having the vision on that and and staying persistent with us and making that happen. And I think the big difference there is unlike you know the traditional channel program you might hear about in software where you know, you, you meet in the, your local area, that system integration shop that's been selling Oracle and Adobe and Microsoft products for the last couple decades. You know, they got 10 salespeople and 10 implementers. This was very different. You know, these were, these were sort of mom and pop marketing departments, uh, marketing shops. These were web designers. These were SEO consultants. And they were all kind of looking for the next wave to align themselves with. And in many times, struggling from a business model standpoint because they were you know, selling one-off initiatives for ten dollars or $20,000 each with no annuity behind it. And so Pete did an amazing job of just embracing those people and, uh, and teaching this new model and, and adding value back to our customers. Wonderful. One more example or one more uh, real life or some example scenario right here and then we'll jump into like two rapid fire questions and we'll be off. Sure. So Let's say a website is, they're doing a good job of lead generation. So they're collecting 50 email leads a day. Uh, let's mm-hmm. just call it a services business. So you know, the only thing is they're getting the 50 email leads a day, but they aren't doing a good job of converting these into actual customers, into actual revenue. You know, what would you recommend you know, a company like this do? They're good with lead generation, but they can't convert them. What have you guys done in that situation? Yeah. Jeez, it could be a whole bunch of things, but I will tell you that my first guess as to what's actually happening is the sales team that they're using to convert those leads is has sort of an a, a, a legacy mindset. And they're used to engaging with the C-suite with a cold call elevator pitch and really just shaking that tree of cold calls as hard as possible until someone falls out the bottom. And when you convert to more of a, a program like you're talking about here, Eric, sometimes you don't get the C-suite responding. Sometimes you get someone a little bit lower down. And uh, if you take a legacy mindset to them and go approach them with a pitch that was more appropriate for the C-suite, not recognizing that they're a manager or an end user, 
the whole program falls apart and the sales team gets frustrated. So I think what, what needs to happen here is there needs to be an awareness of the context of this buyer, whether the role they're at and the interest that they have based on the content that they've engaged with. And you can go to market as opposed to going to market or as a sales team with that elevator pitch that work with the C-suite. Instead, engage with that end, you know, that end contact on the content that they actually downloaded. Don't be afraid to help them for free for many minutes, 10, 20 minutes. And then start digging into the normal qualification around what their particular problems are, what their relation to the problem is, and their buyer power. And if they are the decision maker, proceed. And if they're not, then do some digging around now that you've done built some trust to see who might be and why they might, you know, why they're looking into this. So in summary, there's usually a disconnect between a legacy mindset around the sales process and this newer way to generating leads. Yeah, super, super important to understand kind of the, the behavior that you're talking about, able, able to see kind of what content they're downloading and, and see also who they are exactly. And I think a lot of people, they don't have the technology or they're not using the technology available to them. And I think tool like HubSpot or other tools out there can, can help do the job there. Okay, two more questions for you. What's one piece of advice you'd give to your 25-year-old self? It would be take more risks and be a nonconformist. You know, I always look at uh, when I advise folks earlier in their career, I say, manage your career like your 401k. Everybody knows that when you, you're 22 and you start contributing to your 401k, you don't put the money into bonds, right? And, and like low growth funds. You throw in the most aggressive stuff because, yeah, it could go down in the next 10 years, but you're going to be at it for 30 or 40 years. And uh, in, historically, it's always gone up. That's the way you want to think about your career. You know, you're, you're, you're going to feel like you can take less risks later on. Take the big risks early and don't swim with the masses. I think when you're, when you're 20 years old, you're just coming out of those teenage years where you're significant peer pressure and you want to kind of swim where everyone else is swimming. Turn over the rocks that no one else is turning over. That's usually where the gold is. I love it. Okay. What's one must read book you recommend to the audience? I'm going to give you two, actually. You can, there's one for you and then another one you recommend. Uh, I'm taking more than that, unfortunately. We talked a lot about the sales acceleration formula. That's that's selfish. It's also selfish for me to, to mention Inbound Marketing, written by our co-founders, which has done even better and is an awesome book and was just rewritten. I'm going to take two outsiders if I could. The Hard Thing About Hard Things is something that I really enjoyed recently. Uh, it's been out there for a while, but I think for an entrepreneur, it's fantastic. And the other book on selling that's just an oldie but goodie, never goes away, is Spin Selling by Neil Rackham. It's the one when... Uh, when a founder is trying to learn how to sell belly to belly, I tell them to, to check out spin selling. Interesting. I've never heard of spin selling, but uh, interesting thing about hard thing about hard things, I should get like an affiliate commission for that because it's been recommended so many times on this podcast. It's a beauty. Cool. So we'll drop all of these in the show notes. You know, sales acceleration formula, in, in my opinion, I, I can't recommend it enough. Everybody go pick it up. Mark, this has been fantastic. What's the best way for people to find you online? LinkedIn and Twitter at Mark Roberge. All right, everyone, this is Mark Roberge. Check out him online and check out his book. And uh, Mark, thanks for doing this. Thanks, Eric. Enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Everywhere. If you loved what you heard, be sure to head back to growtheverywhere.com for today's show notes and a ton of additional resources. But before you go, hit the subscribe button to avoid missing out on next week's value-packed interview. Enjoy the rest of your week and remember to take action and continue growing.